Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now. So boys and girls, you need to get your Bibles out, get the pew Bibles out, and we're turning to Psalm 119. This is the longest Psalm in the Bible, and you'll find it on page 512, 512 of the Blue Pew Bibles. It's a really, really long Psalm. Do you want to know how many verses there are in it, boys and girls? There are 176, 176 verses. Do you think we can read that tonight, boys and girls? No, you're shaking your heads. It's a really long psalm. We're not going to read it all tonight. We're going to read some parts of it. So we're going to read verses 1 to 8. And you'll find verses 1 to 8 on page 512. And then we're going to turn over uh, to some verses later on in the psalm as well. So first of all, Psalm 119, verse 1 down to verse 8. This psalm is all about the Bible, all about God's word. And it's a really beautiful psalm. So this is God's word to us. Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And then if you turn over a couple of pages to page 516 of the Pew Bibles, we're going to verse 161 of Psalm 119. So verse 161, page 516 of the Pew Bibles. It says, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace of those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles at this point in our service and turn back to Psalm 119. Uh, you'll find it on page 512 onwards in your pew Bibles. Uh, tonight is one of our big question nights, and tonight the big question that we're thinking about is, can we really trust the Bible? Uh, we're going to say a few bits and pieces about that issue just in a minute or two, but as you're turning Psalm 119 up, uh, let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is reliable and is a guide for us as we live in this world. And we pray that as we consider its reliability tonight, that you would encourage us and give us confidence in it and help us to be known as people of the book, people who rely on your word because you're a speaking God and speak to us through your word by your spirit. So we pray that you would encourage us tonight and help us to think about this big question together. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So big question tonight is, can we really trust the Bible? 
Uh, the world is changing before our very eyes, and in some ways we can barely keep up. Uh, since the turn of the decade, 2020, the pace of change has seemed to be a little bit out of control. Uh, one of the most notable things that has happened within society is that certain parts of culture are being airbrushed from our memory. So you've seen the stories in the news where, where statues are being pulled down and other things like that are happening. Uh, there was a very good example of that cultural airbrushing this week. Uh, there was a story about the Roald Dahl books and how they've been changed and softened to suit modern audiences. Uh, there was quite a bit of fuss about the whole issue and the Prime Minister and the Queen actually got involved. Uh, the same thing has happened to the James Bond novels written by Ian Fleming. Uh, part of the parts that were in the originals have been changed to, to something more culturally appropriate, something more appropriate for modern readers. Culture seems to have gone a little bit mad in that the slightest line of offence has now been removed and changed so that no one is upset. Yet there's a difficulty with that, especially for us as Christians. Our faith is based on a book. And one of the most common objections to Christianity is that people say that the Bible isn't true or that you can't trust it. This season at Vibe, we have been thinking about the Bible, what it means to read the Bible, how we do that as well. Tonight, we're going to think about how we can trust the Bible. P people question whether or not the Bible is true. And sometimes we can be a bit unnerved by those questions. But there is some logical truth that we can hold on to as those questions come at us. Now, there are lots of directions that this sermon could have gone this evening as we think about trusting the Bible. Due to time constraints, I've had to focus our thinking in one particular area. What I thought I would do is concentrate on what the Bible says about Jesus. Can we trust what we have in the Gospels? Can we trust the accounts of Jesus' life and therefore the accounts about his death and resurrection? So what we're going to do is think about that. And then towards the end, I'll try and sum things up and mention some points of application for us. The question we're dealing with initially then is, can we be confident that the original Bible writers told the truth? Don't want to scare you or lose you at this point, but there are five answers to that question. It was joking before the service that I had one point this morning, five tonight, and that's kind of my quota. I've got six points in total for a day, and I'm using five tonight, one this morning. They're all going to come up on the screen, so there's no need to panic, and you will be able to follow things with me. The first thing that we need to say in answer to that question, can we be confident that the Bible writers told the truth? The first answer is this. The broad outlines of Jesus' life are confirmed in other historical sources of the time. The broad outlines of Jesus' life are confirmed in other historical sources of the time. There are lots of historical documents that confirm what we're told in the Bible. Uh, let me mention some of them to you. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian who was writing about AD 66. He most definitely wasn't a Christian, but he said these things about Jesus. He said Jesus was called the Christ, that he was the founder of the Christians, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, there was belief that he rose from the dead and that James was Jesus' brother. Rabbi Eliezer, who was writing about AD 95, said that Christianity was a worldwide movement by AD 70. Pliny, who was a lawyer, author, and magistrate of ancient Rome, said that Jesus' followers were called Christians and these followers worshipped Jesus as a god. Tacitus was another historian of the Roman Empire. He wrote around AD 112, 
And he said that Jesus was executed in Judea during the period when Tiberius was emperor. And that was about AD 14 to about 37. And Pontius Pilate was the governor at that time, Tacitus said. And that was between AD 26 and AD 36. It's a very specific date range for Jesus' execution. And Tacitus has also written that the movement that Christianity spread from Judea to Rome. Uh, One more Roman historian, Suetonius, wrote that in AD 120, that Christians existed at the time of Nero and were persecuted by him. And that persecution happened around AD 66. So broadly speaking, the facts about Jesus' existence, the broad outline of his life and death, the details about the spread of Christianity, and the fact that early Christians worshipped Jesus as Lord are confirmed in historical sources from the time. One of the most interesting references comes from a man called Thallus, who lived around the time of Jesus. None of his works have survived, but he is quoted by one of the early Christian writers 150 years later. He obviously had his books, even though we don't. And one of the things that Thallus mentioned in his books was the darkness that came over the land at the time of the crucifixion. He tried to argue that it had no religious significance at all. His suggestion was that it was a solar eclipse. Now, it can't have been a solar eclipse because it was Passover, and that's a lunar feast when the moon is never in the right place for a solar eclipse. That's not really the main point, though. The main point is that by raising the darkness that happened at the crucifixion, Thallus proves that Jesus was crucified and proves that the darkness referred to in the Gospels actually happened. So here are some of the external witnesses to the fact of Jesus' existence. And let's be really clear, these are not Christians. They are, in some cases, enemies of Christianity, or in other cases, simply secular historians who don't follow Jesus. But by their writing, they confirm the big themes of the Gospels to make an offhand comment like, or, oh, sure, you can't trust what was written about Jesus anyway, is to fly in the face of the evidence. The the second thing we need to say is that the events the gospel writers tell us about are too close to be made up. The gospels were written between 30 to 60 years after Jesus' death. The letters that speak of him were written even closer than that, probably between 15 to 20 years after his death. 30 years is not a long time. Think about what happened in 1993. Manchester United won the Premier League title. They won it a lot in the 1990s. John Major was the Prime Minister. There's actually an interesting anniversary today, 26th of February. On the 26th of February, 1993, there was a terrorist attack on on the World Trade Center in New York, the same towers that were destroyed at 9-11. A van bomb detonated, detonated below the North Tower, And despite not doing what it was intended to do, it killed six people, including a pregnant woman and injured over a thousand. About 50,000 people were evacuated from the buildings that day. The attack has kind of been forgotten about or even overshadowed by what happened eight years later. But 30 years isn't that long ago. Any of you who are here and are over the age of 40 might remember that bomb, might remember that story. And the point is that there would have been many eyewitnesses circulating who could have confirmed the stories about Jesus. When Luke starts his gospel, he talks about eyewitnesses. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And there were not just a handful of witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul claims that the risen Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection. And there's another example of eyewitnesses in Mark 15, 21. Uh, we're, told about, we're told that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And why would he say that? Why would Mark give us that little detail? Well, almost certainly because these two men were in the church and were known to the people who first read Mark's gospel. Mark is pretty much saying, ask them what happened. When Paul preaches to King Agrippa, he says that these things were not done in a corner, and it's as if he's saying, you know this happened. It would just not have been possible for something of this scale to take root so close to the original events unless it could not be contradicted. So all of that is to say that the accounts of Jesus' life and death were circulating among the people who were there and who knew what happened. They could confirm or deny what was claimed. If it had all been made up, Christianity would never have got off the ground in the first place. Third thing we want to say is that the Gospels are too counterproductive to be propaganda. So some people argue that the early church made up the stories about Jesus or embellished them in order to strengthen its position, that Christians wrote stories that make them look good. But what do we actually see in the Gospels? First, we see that the disciples themselves come out of those stories particularly badly. Uh, we've been thinking about that uh, through the life of Peter in Second Peter. Think of the stories of Peter messing things up time and time again. Overall, the disciples really aren't presented very well in the Gospels. They're often shown to be a little bit slow. The, the evidence just isn't there that they wrote propaganda to strengthen their movement. Not, not only that, but we don't actually see Jesus saying things that would have been connected to some of the big debates in the early church. Uh, one of the things that the church had trouble getting a position on was circumcision. Jews were circumcised, but the big question of the time was, should non-Jews who became Christians be circumcised too? It was a big debate, and you can read about it in the book of Acts. Jesus, though, never refers to it. If the Gospels were written to support a particular position, then they would have made up stories about Jesus saying other things as well. But there's nothing like that. Some people also say that the gospel writers made Jesus out to be bigger or more important than he actually was. They maybe did that so that people would believe. Well, if that was the case, they didn't do a very good job. Let me give you two examples. First of all, they wouldn't have told a story about Jesus being forsaken on a cross. In those days, as in our culture today, strength and power were major virtues. And yet, what do the gospels tell us? We read about a Jesus who is crucified, and rather than toughing it out, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that tells us some very precious things about what happened to Jesus on the cross, but if you'd been trying to make Jesus more sellable, you would never have made that up. The second example, who were the first witnesses of the resurrection? Well, they were women. And again, in the, in the culture of the day, this was a major problem for the church. Women were not considered to be reliable witnesses. They couldn't even testify in court. The fact that the gospel writers tell us that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women can only have one explanation. 
And that is because the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. You couldn't make it up. It would be like scoring an own goal right at the start of the match. The evidence isn't there to say that their stories were designed to help Christianity get off the ground. So we're trying to answer this question. Can we be, can we be confident that the original Bible writers told the truth? We've thought about three things so far, a couple more things to go. Here's the fourth thing. The stories in the Gospels don't have the characteristics of legends. Were the gospel writers telling us fanciful stories to make points rather like Aesop's fables or other mythical writings? Would they be appalled that people had taken them literally? Well, that's a non-starter as well. It is true that people write fiction with lots of details to make it sound believable, but in the ancient world, ancient legends were not like that. They didn't add details for realism, they were of an altogether different character. In the Gospels, however, there are all sorts of little historical details. For example, in the story of Jesus calming the storm, we're told that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. That detail serves no purpose in the story at all. It's just a detail that points to the fact that it came from an eyewitness, someone who saw it actually happen. When the woman is caught in adultery in John 8, we read of Jesus writing with his finger in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote. It wasn't recorded for us. But that's the detail of an eyewitness testimony rather than the embellishments that we, that we would use to make the story real. C.S. Lewis was an expert on ancient literature. And he said that unless the Gospels had been written in the style of modern fiction that didn't emerge for 1,700 years, there's no question that they were reporting events that the writers meant, to under, meant us to understand really happened. Fifthly and finally, the Gospels are written by those who really believe them. One of the strong arguments for the truth of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament is that the authors really believed what they were writing. They believed it so much they were willing to give their lives for the cause. We know that lots of people die for things that are not true, but not so many people give up their lives for, for something they know not to be true or something they make up. And yet the fact is that most of the people who wrote the New Testament suffered for their faith. Peter, he was crucified upside down. Thomas, he was torn in two. Paul was executed. It would be possible that people would persist in propagating something they knew to be untrue if they were really benefiting from it. We see that all the time. But it's most uncommon to see people persist with a lie when they are really suffering for it, and especially if they're likely to lose their lives because of it. That would see, this would seem to, seem to suggest that at the very least, the disciples and the New Testament writers genuinely believed that what they wrote really happened. So those are five things that we can point to in order to answer the question, can we be confident that the original Bible writers told the truth? Each answer by itself might not be terribly convincing, but when you put them all together, they do point to the truth of the Bible. We often find that today, today people's biggest objection to the Bible is the claim that it's outdated. You might hear someone say that the Bible needs to be rewritten or edited to fit in with today, and then it would be okay, then it would be acceptable. But what I think is actually going on in someone's heart when they say that is that they have a lack of interest in finding, finding out what the Bible actually teaches. 
But you know what? We've all got to guard against becoming lackadaisical when it comes to reading the Bible for ourselves. We've got to watch that we don't subtly move from thinking that the Bible is just this really helpful book but, and that it needs to tone down some of what it says. In closing, let, let, let me ask the question, what, what should we feel about the Word of God? What, what should we feel about the Bible? Well, we read from Psalm 119 earlier, and we read from that psalm for a purpose. It's a psalm that's all about the Bible. It's a psalm that tells us about how great the Bible really is. Let me give you a challenge tonight. Say to the boys and girls that it's 176 verses long. Go home this week and read the entire psalm. Spend some time just working through it and read all 176 verses. It will do your soul the world of good. Psalm 119 is really a love poem about the word of God. And the psalmist wants us to feel or think three things about the Bible. First of all, we should delight in it. In Psalm 119, we read read that the words of Scripture are sweet like honey and the joy of the psalmist's heart, and, uh, and and it's the joy of the psalmist's heart. Verse 167, which we read together, says, My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Now, you might be thinking, I could never feel this about the Bible. But there are times in our lives when we get excited about words on a page. We all pay attention when we're hearing or reading words that are of great benefit to us, like a will or an acceptance letter. We can read carefully when the text before us warns warns us of great danger, like, like, like instructions on an electrical panel. And the Bible is a book with great benefit to us and also one with grave warnings. It's a book that brings us face to face with God, with the God of the universe, the Lord of all glory. The Bible can feel dull at times, but taken as a whole, it's the greatest story ever told. And those who know it best are usually those who delight in it the most. Let me encourage you tonight to be delighted in the word, to give yourself to reading it, because it is a book that benefits us greatly. The second feeling we should have when it comes to the Bible is a desire for it. Roughly speaking, there are at least six times when the psalmist expresses his longing to keep the commands of God. There are at least 14 times when he expresses a desire to know and understand the Bible itself. I wonder tonight, do you desire to know and understand and to keep the word of God? What is your number one reason for coming to church to see your friends, to sing your favorite hymns. Both are really important. But the number one reason for coming to church is so that we will hear the word and apply it to our hearts. We're to desire it. Do we have a desire to hear the word every Sunday? Do we come expecting God to speak to us? Thirdly and finally, we should depend on it. Listen to verse 31 of Psalm 119. It says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I cling to your testimonies. The the psalmist is constantly aware of his needs for the word of God. There are lots of things we want in life, but there are few things we really need. Even uh, every true Christian should feel this deep in his or her bones and utter dependence on the scriptures. Man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, one final thought. What we believe and feel about the word of God are absolutely crucial for this reason. They should mirror what we believe and feel about Jesus. If we don't love the word, we won't love Jesus. But the more we delight in it, have a desire for it, and the more we depend on it, the more we'll delight in it, have a desire for, and depend on Jesus. So that's another big question done. Can you, can I trust the Bible? What's the answer? Well, yes, absolutely, we can trust the Bible. And because we can trust the Bible, we should delight in it, have a desire for it, and depend on it. And as we do that, we'll begin to see God transforming us and working in ways that we never, ever imagined.